Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hello, welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan. The goal of our show is to help our listener find uh, approaches to help with their own conditions and so they can strive toward optimal wellness, uh, so they can uh, explore nutrition, lifestyle approaches, and get information that they can try on their own or share with their physician uh, so they can work together as a team. Pain is a a common condition that affects most of us at one time or another, and at times it can be indeed crippling and life-changing. So today we're going to talk about pain, and we have a pain expert with us. We have Dr. Paul Christo. He is listed as one of the top doctors and among the top 1% for pain management by the U.S. News and World Report. He hosts an award-winning, nationally syndicated Sirius XM radio show called Aches and Gains. He features celebrity guests such as Naomi Judd, Joe Montana, Montel Williams, and the late Maya Angelou on wide-ranging approaches to overcoming pain. He's a board-certified pain specialist and anesthesiologist. He serves as an associate professor in the Division of Pain Medicine at the John Hopkins University School of Medicine. And he was honored by the American Society of Pain Educators as the Pain Educator of the Year for his work on public education through the media. Well, welcome, Dr. Christo. It is so good to have you on our program. Thanks so much for having me, Dr. Downs. Great to be here. Okay, so let's go through general information on pain and is particularly emphasizing on how we can help our listeners. But first of all, what got you interested in this area? I think my interest began when I was an intern in internal medicine, and I was seeing patients in an internal medicine clinic uh, who had pain and had chronic pain, and I felt like I was limited in terms of what I could offer them to improve the quality of their life. And uh, when I progressed then from internship to residency in anesthesiology, I felt like, wow, gosh, now I've got you know more tools to help those in pain, although the tools primarily to help reduce pain during surgery. And I felt like, gosh, I want to be able to help patients outside of the surgical realm. And that's what sort of sparked my interest in, in becoming a pain specialist. Wow. So what have you learned in all that time? Well, I mean, I've certainly learned that the problem of chronic pain is much, much bigger than I ever imagined. There are estimates that over 100 million Americans suffer from chronic pain. I mean, that's a third of the population, which is much, much larger than I ever thought. And I see that, you know, on a daily basis when I see patients uh, as an out, in an outpatient setting who have various forms of chronic pain. I think what I've also learned is that, fortunately, we do have many tools that can help reduce pain, ease suffering, and improve the quality of life of those who have chronic pain. So does pain serve a purpose? It does serve a purpose. Acute pain certainly serves a purpose. 
mean, if you are at your stove and you accidentally lean on a burner that's turned on, it's going to hurt. And it, the purpose of that is to remove your body, remove your arm from that noxious stimulus, you know, from that burner that could lead to tissue damage. So that's a great example of the importance of pain. But when we're talking about chronic pain, we're talking about a different phenomenon altogether. Now we're talking about changes that occur in the brain and spinal cord that are no longer adaptive and they become dysfunctional and really a disease in and of itself. Uh, I keep reading in the literature, there seems to be a pendulum swinging back and forth about adequate treatment for pain and the use of opiates. It seems that the pendulum's swinging the other way now, saying that there's far too much opiate addiction out there. What comments do you have on that? Well, that's a great point. Uh, You know, I think that over time, over the last several years, primary care doctors and, you know, even some pain specialists have been over-aggressive in terms of using opioids to help reduce chronic pain. I mean, these are long-acting opioids, for example, long-acting morphine or oxycodone. I think it was done because, frankly, we cared cared about reducing pain in patients who have chronic symptoms. It's just that it has sort of gotten out of hand, and I think the non-medical use of opioids has led to what we're seeing, which is overdose and death. Also, what about opiate addiction? Yeah. I mean, opiate addiction has become a problem as well. That sort of relates to the non-medical use of these substances. I, I see that in patients of mine that I treat, but I don't see it that often, to be honest. I mean, there's, there certainly is a risk of addiction to opioids. Uh, and I think that we have to be careful when we're prescribing opioids for chronic pain. We have to be careful about abuse, misuse, diversion, and addiction. And that's why, you know, the Centers for Disease Control and other specialists have now stated, well, look, these medications are, can be important for non-cancer, chronic pain, but let's just consider them for those patients who have severe pain that, are, that is not responsive to other therapies. Yeah, because I find it a problem when patients come into the emergency room and they want opiates, and I'll prescribe it if I can find proof of another prescription, but a lot of times I can't, and they're just coming in hoping to get some. So that's a real quandary. I don't want these people to be in pain, but I don't want them to just, you know, get high so or have a buzz. So it's a chronic problem for anybody that's treating patients. It is, and that concern exists. For me, too, I mean, pain is so subjective, we don't have a good objective measure of evaluating pain in patients that we see, so we're naturally inclined to believe them when they say their pain is extreme or it's a 10 out of a 10. And, I mean, as physicians, we want to, we want to ease their pain, we want to improve their quality of life. So I, I think it's natural to want to try opioids, but I just think that a lot of primary care physicians and, you know, even some pain specialists started using opioids for chronic pain more than maybe they should have. And now we're seeing some of the consequences of that. Yeah, well, we certainly want to look at the alternatives. But part of this problem is as physicians, when we feel helpless to see somebody there in pain in front of us, we feel helpless that we can't help and our tendency to want to solve the problems and relieve the symptoms. So I think that's behind uh, the prescription of these opioids as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. And certainly I think the opioids, let's not forget that they really are critical 
for patients who have cancer pain and who have pain at the end of life. What are some of the alternatives? What about CBD? Yeah, I like that. I mean, the alternatives, so you're talking about, say, medical marijuana? Exactly. I think that's intriguing, and I think that we're seeing more and more patients in the United States, and really even outside the United States, who are interested in the effects of marijuana for pain control. I feel like, to a certain extent, that the practice of using medical marijuana is outpacing the science. In other words, I think that there are, we do have some studies, fortunately, that show that medical marijuana is useful for conditions like HIV, neuropathy, um, trauma pain, cancer pain, for example, even diabetic pain. Uh, but I don't think yet we know exactly how to dose it and should it be smoked or should it be vaporized and, you know, how much THC versus cannabidiol, for example. Yeah, that certainly is another issue out here in California. Uh, I've seen physicians set up a, a plaque at health fair saying marijuana card for $100 and everybody comes in, these young, healthy, various people. I'm on medical marijuana, so I have to scratch my head with that one. But I do believe it has a place. Me too. And I think it actually is exciting because we need more effective therapies for pain control. I mean, for chronic pain, especially. So, uh, and medical marijuana seems very safe, you know, unlike opioids, if you overdose, it's not going to lead to death. You know, it's not going to stop you from breathing, which is what can happen with opioids. Does long-term marijuana use have an effect on the brain? I believe Daniel Amen has said that it does, but, you know, it's a trade-off between pain and long-term problems, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I think there can be brain changes associated with it, and, you know, but frankly, that can occur with opioids as well. Uh, I, the safety measure with marijuana relates to the fact that it's not going to stop you from breathing. But, you know, there are patients and others who are not patients who use marijuana who can develop uh, the disease of addiction and can abuse it. And that's a concern, too. I believe even with the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, uh, such as ibuprofen, naproxen, etc., that they disrupt the gut microbiota, which I think ultimately can lead to all sorts of problems as well. This sort of implies that there's a yin and a yang, a plus and a minus for every substance we put in our bodies. Well, that's a great point. I, I certainly agree. And, I mean, we have... The anti-inflammatories, as you mentioned, that can help reduce chronic pain. But we have other medications, too, things like some of the anticonvulsants, like Neurontin or Lyrica, that can be helpful for treating nerve pain especially. Or some of the antidepressant medicines, believe it or not, can also reduce chronic pain. Absolutely, like Cymbalta, Prozac, etc., even Elevil. Anyway, um, do women and men experience pain differently? Great question. They do. They do experience pain differently. And what some of the brain imaging results have shown is that pain is processed um, more actively in the emotional center of the brain, which is called the limbic system. Well, men's pain is processed in areas of the brain that are more related to cognition or analytical thinking. And as a result, women indeed may actually feel pain more intensely because, or more, more emotionally because, because it's processed in the emotional center of the brain. 
So what does it mean to feel pain emotionally versus cognitively for men? Does that just mean we'll have a lot more emotions and the men will be more logical about it? What does that mean? Yeah, it sort of mm-hmm. it sort of does mean that. I mean, the what that specifically means is that women may experience more depression, perhaps more anxiety, more pain intensity with respect to chronic pain than men. I mean, that's a generalization. That doesn't that doesn't always occur. Uh, but what's sort of fascinating about that is that when it comes to the tools to help reduce pain, women actually may be an advantage at an advantage compared to men because they can, if they can harness through, say, cognitive behavioral therapy, the means, the emotional means of controlling pain, well, they're more apt to do that and it may be easier for them to do that compared to men because of the fact that pain is processed uh, a little bit more actively in the limbic system of the brain. Hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, I would say in general, uh, we women, we tend to express our emotions more readily, so there probably are some differences that would be very interesting to study in the future, although uh, all generalizations are false, I believe. Uh, does <laughs> chronic pain change our brain chemistry? Chronic pain does change our brain chemistry, and this is something that we've learned over the last several years in the sense that For example, if you have low back pain, well, gosh, brain neuroimaging studies have demonstrated a loss of brain tissue, I mean, specifically the gray matter in the brain. And the gray matter is important because that's what processes information and helps store memories. The thing is, Susan, I mean, no one would have ever guessed, you know, in the past, 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, that chronic pain could actually lead to a loss of brain tissue, but it does. And not only a low back pain, but it can occur. We've seen this in neuroimaging studies in patients who have fibromyalgia or severe headaches like tension, chronic tension type headaches, for example. So how would this show up in the brain? I mean, if the pain remains or if the pain subsides? It shows what you mean on neuroimaging? No, um, behavior, Uh, cognitive ability. For the person who's enduring the pain. Oh, I see. Yes. Well, what patients will report is that they can't remember things that they used to remember, that their short-term memory is poorer, and that they can't retain information when they're reading to the same extent that they could before. I mean, real, real sort of phenomenon and real-life changes that occur on a daily basis. Doesn't it sound a lot like involvement of the hippocampus, which is where we first uh, place memories and sort them out, which is one of the first things to go toward the path of degrading cognitive uh, abilities? Yeah. Like Alzheimer's? Exactly. Yeah, that so, area too. I mean, what though, the, the hope here though is that, and not only the hope, but actually what studies have revealed about pain treatment and the importance of pain treatment is that it can reverse these changes that are seen in the brain. And that's the good news. So that means if we've got cognitive decline and our hippocampus is not functioning very well and we've got short-term memory loss, which most of the baby boomers are concerned means Alzheimer's on its way. So if, the, we, if people go down that pathway with pain, this can be reversed with pain treatment? As far as we, as far as we know, I mean, based on certain studies, 
specifically in those who have low back pain, that when you in- initiate treatments that are pain-reducing, that those changes that we're seeing on functional MRI imaging are no longer there. That's and, pretty exciting. And, yeah, it is exciting. And not only that, but that then on a real sort of life basis, Patients are saying, well, you know, gosh, I now feel like I can think the way I used to. I can remember things the way I used to. Well, I think with chronic pain, it's debilitating. I think it would be hard to focus on anything. So that probably complicates it as well. It does. And chronic pain does lead to a lot of difficulty focusing, concentrating. I mean, I have a lot of patients who will tell me, you know, these are high-functioning, high-functioning individuals. Of, for example, of certain companies or physicians, even themselves, attorneys, who will say, you know, gosh, I cannot. You know, I used to be able to sit at a meeting for an hour. I can't do that now. You know, I, I can maybe last a half an hour, and then I've got to get up. I've got to leave. I can't focus anymore. Well, I I used to have trigeminal neuralgia, which I couldn't do anything. I was out for the count. So they offered me my choice of pills, and looking at the options, I figured trileptal and neurotin would have the fewer side effects. But I managed to find a cure for it. Oh, that's wanna, good. Good for you. You want And you don't want to know what that is? I do. Well, when I went online, I noticed that cavitations in the jawbone were, were, had an association with a trigeminal nerve. And then think about it. If you have a tooth extraction or root canal, they might leave a tiny bit of bacteria behind. And that, over decades, can multiply to a big pocket of pus, osteonecrosis, osteomyelitis. And the nerve travels right through that, so you expect pain. So I had my dentist, and we'll have dentists on in the future discuss very options as well, drill into the bone, inject ozone. I can oh. feel, feel the ozone go along the pathway of the nerve root, um, and eventually the pain went away, and the um, osteonecrosis, the big cavitations went away, and my bone grew back. So, I mean, but trigeminal neuralgia, which they call the suicide disease, I couldn't do anything. On the medications, it got, I took two-thirds of the dose. It got it down to a dull roar, so at least I could function. Yeah. But that's one approach. Yeah, I'm glad that helped. I'm, I'm really glad that helped you, though, because in others, unfortunately, it, um, you know, they struggle. Well, have they looked into that option to see if they've got cavitations? Well, of the patients that I've seen, I have to say, I don't think so. Well, there's a new uh, clue. I mean, you get a certain kind of x-ray with the dentist, and if you've got cavitations there and that nerve root is traveling through a pile of pus, that's what to be is subjected. And my, I haven't had any pain in three or four years. Oh, good for you. So just another tool for the toolkit, folks. Yeah, yeah. Okay, what is millennial technic? We're seeing... More and more patients and younger patients who use their screens, so specifically smartphones, iPads, iPhones, many, many hours during the day. When they do that, they're looking down. They're flexing the neck, often at 60-degree angle. Well, when you do that for four, five, six hours a day, it, I mean, you're at risk for developing neck pain. That pain can be a result of muscle spasm, muscle aches. It can uh, stress, strain the joints of the neck, the tendons, the ligaments. And even over time, there may be a suggestion that it could start 
causing degeneration of the discs in the neck. So this is something that we're seeing a little bit more, sort of more and more related to all of the smartphone use. So is that because they're cricking their neck to keep the phone on the shoulder? Well, that's a good point. That I've seen that too, sort of tilted left or to the right. I've seen more though the pain in the neck from looking down, you know, from flexing the neck and looking down for several hours a day. I mean, there was one study that actually showed that looking down at a sixty-degree angle is equivalent to sixty pounds of pressure placed on your neck. So you can imagine that over time, over hours, over days, weeks, months, even years, that can lead to chronic pain syndrome in the neck. Wow. So when this pain starts developing, is there something people can do to uh, reverse the process? Yes. And what I tell patients of mine to do, too, is to be more alert and aware of their posture, specifically. And if they can, you know, raise the iPhone, the smartphone, to a higher level closer to their the line of their eyes. Now, that's sometimes hard to do because we're all used to looking down, but you can do that when you're walking or sitting. I also then, you know, there are some apps that can be used, some applications that will alert you to when your neck is tilted down too far, and that's been helpful for certain patients as well. And uh, would a good massage, like from a structural osteopath or a good masseuse, would that help reverse some of the muscle tension that started to create the problem? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love massage myself, I have to say. So, I, you know, I, massages can help reduce the stress and strain on the muscles, for sure. Warm showers, warm baths, warm towels on the neck can be very helpful as well. If you massage all the knots that are created in the muscles, should that relieve the problem if structural damage had not yet occurred? Yeah, absolutely. It certainly can. And also, I mean, just being aware of your posture when standing and specifically sitting, too, is important in terms of, you know, your, uh, your sh- a, lot of, a lot of patients, or a lot of people for that matter, really protract their shoulders. That is, you know, they sort of hunch forward. And if they become aware of that, that is, they can retract their shoulders or pull them backwards and practice doing that during the day. You know, especially if you're at a, at a desk job where you're sitting in front of a computer for eight hours a day, because you're really tempted to scrunch your shoulders forward and protract them. And that postural change can lead to not only shoulder pain, but neck pain and upper back pain. And probably changes in the spinal cord as well if you do it long enough, in which case I think our doctors really need to write us prescriptions for massages to help reverse these modern-day challenges. I think so. I mean, physical therapy can be helpful too. I mean, the physical therapist can provide guidance on, you know, proper posture, posture alignment, for example, the shoulders. And just being aware of it is really helpful, I've noticed, in a lot of patients that I've seen. They're aware of it, and they make the postural correction. Okay. So what can we do about tension headaches other than minimizing our tension? (laughs) Yeah, that's key. Tension relief. There's a lot of stress. I mean, a lot of a lot of people are stressed. So stress reduction techniques are key. Uh, tension type headaches can be helped with, as you mentioned earlier in the show, anti-inflammatories. NSAIDs can be helpful. For example, ibuprofen, naproxen, 
Celebrex. Some of those agents can be helpful uh, for tension-type headaches, for sure. Uh, also, you can, I mean, acupuncture, if we're looking at some of the integrative therapies, acupuncture can be helpful for certainly migraine headaches, also for tension-type headaches. Well, what about hitting the acupressure points under the occipital area for tension headache? That's kind of under the ridge uh, right above the neck. Uh, Does that help relieve it? Because a lot of times, you know, if we've got a headache, we might not want to, you know, might not have time to run out to make an appointment with an acupuncturist. Yeah, the acupressure, certainly there are acupressure points that can be helpful as well in reducing tension-type headaches. I mean, and, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people really want the headache to go away quickly, and that can be with acupressure or it can be with some of the anti-inflammatory medications, or even Tylenol can be helpful. You know, over-the-counter Tylenol can be helpful in reducing tension-type headaches. Okay. What about sinus headaches? Sinus headaches are interesting, and a lot of patients who have sinus headaches who feel like it's sinusitis actually have migraine headaches. And migraine headaches then are often treated with acupuncture, with various different medications, various different, you know, specific drugs that are used to help treat migraine headaches can be very effective. Um, Botulinum toxin or Botox injections, you know, for migraine headaches, I found to be very effective in patients who have chronic migraine. And where are these injected? Will it make well, it look prettier? <laughs> I know. Well, they, that's a great side effect. <laughs> They're injected for, into the forehead, the oh. occipital muscle, the temporal muscles, uh, the back of the neck, and the upper back slash shoulder area and the trapezius muscles. Well, we are coming close to a break now, so it's nice to know that a side effect of what our doctor might prescribe for us will make us look more youthful. That's always a plus. But we'll talk more right after our break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You 
are listening to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. We'd love to hear from you about today's show. Send your email to Dr. Susan at OccupyHealth.com. That's Dr. Susan at OccupyHealth.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan, and I'm speaking with Dr. Paul Christo, who is a pain expert and actually has his own radio talk show on the subject and interviewed world celebrities and found many different ways to relieve pain. So let's get back to this. Uh, what about rotator cuff injuries? I mean, when I've gone to the physician, they just say, oh, you've got to live with it for a year and a half. <laughs> well, rotator cuff, I mean, if the rotator cuff injury is partial or, you know, uh, not requiring surgery, then that, I've found, can be treated with injection of a little local anesthetic and steroid into the bursa, which is the covering of that joint. That can be quite helpful, quite effective, uh, in addition to some medicines by mouth, like perhaps some anti-inflammatory medications or Tylenol. I found a couple of alternative approaches. I happen to have two rotator cuffs. Thank God I don't have more rotator cuffs to deal with. But one of them was relieved by a very deep massage. And the second one, I was only two months into the process. And this, I think it was Dr. Sua, stuck, squeezed my muscles, stuck in an acupuncture needle, and then used nanolights. And it was gone like in five minutes. It was kind of amazing. So there are alternatives out there uh, that are interesting to look into. But that's something that can incapacitate us where we can't use our arm, seems like, forever. Some people have it up to four years. Yeah. Okay. What about osteoarthritis? Well, boy, that's one of the top uh, three to four pain con- chronic pain conditions that people suffer from worldwide. Well, that can be quite relieved with sort of, you know, anti-inflammatory medications. So Celebrex, that is, Celecoxib can be helpful. Uh, naproxen, that is a leave, the, even you know ibuprofen. So that's sort of the first line. But I have to say that even if you if you prefer not to start with medications, uh, I mean exercise is helpful, you know, in and of itself in terms of reducing osteoarthritic pain. And it doesn't have to be heavy weightlifting, you know, for an hour a day. Just simple twenty minute walks. Um, maybe a little resistance training. Swimming can be very helpful, I've found, in patients who have osteoarthritis. What about rheumatoid arthritis? That's tougher just because it's such a significant, uh, it causes such significant damage to the, to the joints and joint destruction. There are numerous um, medications now that are available to help reduce rheumatoid arthritis pain and to help control the condition, disease-modifying agents that often target uh, the inflammatory cascade, cytokines in specific, so cytokine inhibitors inhibit cytokines like TNF-alpha, tumor necrosis factor alpha, and there are several of those that can be effective for rheumatoid arthritis. But as an autoimmune disease, isn't the place to start uh, in the gut? and help with our, uh, you know, where all the autoimmunity might be starting or triggered? Well, no question that the gut and foods that we eat, diet, I think would be a good place to start. Try to avoid the foods that lead to inflammation. Those are foods that are, say, cooked at very high temperatures, fried foods, meats. Uh, And if you can avoid those and 
shift your diet toward more anti-inflammatory foods like fish, salmon, for example, dark cherries, berries. I think that is important. And it's not something that happens, I mean, I don't think you feel the effects of diet shifts overnight, but over the course of months, I think it can have a major difference. Yes, and we should, uh, organic foods will help. Uh, Lots of vegetables, multicolored organic, uh, will help with the anti-inflammatory. And healing the gut to make, you know, minimize if it's permeable, which we can take measurements for, and trying to do what we can do to heal the gut. We've had several talks on this show about food sensitivities and autoimmunity, for example, Dr. Vajani, and uh, listeners can research those out further for help with rheumatoid arthritis and other autoimmune diseases. Okay, uh, what about fibromyalgia? Now, that particularly, unfortunately, affects more women than men, and it is something that can be quite debilitating. It affects the muscles of the body, the joints of the body, it causes headaches. And speaking of the gut, a lot of patients who have fibromyalgia will report things like, you know, irritable bowel syndrome and abdominal pain. So that, for that condition, there are three medications that are approved by the Food and Drug Administration to help reduce pain. And those can be helpful. Uh, those are those three would be well. For example, um, Lyrica is one of those. Cymbalta is another one. There's those two are really sort of the main staples: Lyrica and Cymbalta. Um, and I think that there are some patients, though, for whom those are not that helpful, unfortunately. And they've found relief with uh, exercise is another key here in terms of fibromyalgia. If you look at the studies on treatments that are beneficial, you'll see that a good number of them focus on exercise. Can be, this can be pool therapy as well, swimming. for doesn't have to be land-based, but swimming or land-based therapy is helpful. And for more information on fibromyalgia, I think on October 13th, we had Dr. Brady, the author of the FibroFix book, discuss this in a lot more detail so the listeners can go there for more information. Okay, let's look at general pain treatments. So tell us uh, general pain treatments. For example, aromatherapy, does that help? Yes, it does. And I really like that as an integrative therapy. It's undervalued, I think, and not particularly well recognized yet. But it, is, it can be potent, it can be effective, and if you look at some of the studies on aromatherapy, they show that certain types of essential oils that are mixed with, say, olive oil or almond oil and massaged in parts of the body that are painful, that it can be quite effective in reducing pain. Neck pain, low back pain, even knee pain. And then if you look at aromatherapy from a different perspective, one would be topical, so use the essential oil and then, and then place it on the skin for pain relief. Another method of that would be inhaling it. So, you know, there are patients of mine who have a diffuser or a vaporizer and vaporize certain essential oils for pain control. And, and even there are even studies that have shown that vaporizing it or basically inhaling it can reduce post-operative pain and certain needle stick pain, for example, from dialysis. Which uh, essential oils would you recommend? I would say peppermint is a good one. Also clove. Clove has local anesthetic 
properties that can reduce pain. Lavender is another one. And eucalyptus. I personally like eucalyptus. Eucalyptol is the active chemical in, in that, in eucalyptus. And it's also, I think, in rosemary. So the eucalyptol or eucalyptus has pain-reducing properties in and of itself that can be helpful if you inhale it or apply it topically. Okay. What about music therapy? Yeah, another great integrative therapy that I think has yet to be fully realized. You know, we've, we've known for a while, to be honest, that music therapy can reduce pain. And it's used in certain operating rooms throughout the country. You know, patients will put earphones on or there are audio pillows that they can, um, that they can use to listen to music before, during, and after surgery, which is found to be effective in terms of reducing post-operative pain. But it's also been found to be effective in patients who have um, chronic pain, various different chronic pain conditions like arthritis or fibromyalgia, and specifically even cancer pain and end-of-life pain, like so in palliative care settings, which I think is really, I mean, you know, this is something that studies have shown, interestingly, that if you listen to music for maybe 20 minutes, some of these music therapy sessions can be 20 minutes, sometimes they can be an hour, but fascinatingly, the pain relief persists for sometimes up to two weeks after the music therapy sessions. What kind of music? Is it music that resonates with the individuals? For example, I light up when the stones come on. Or is it relaxing <laughs> music that puts us in a spiritual place? Uh, what kind of music, or is it individual? It is actually more individual than you might think. Uh, it's patient preference. Some patients prefer, as you said, the Stones. Others prefer symphonic music, symphony. Uh, And it can be live music. It could be music that's recorded. Or even if you are a musician or like to sing, those different methods of musical expression have been found to be helpful. So singing is kind of like a meditation. It gets our breath uh, in a good place, going in a good rhythm. And so maybe singing has meditative as well as music uh, effects. Yeah, great point. I think that's true. And also singing, performing music, if you will, can lower heart. It triggers the parasympathetic nervous system. So it blocks the sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight or flight system, and thereby triggers the the parasympathetic nervous system, which leads to a decrease in heart rate, a decrease in blood pressure, uh, a reduction in uh, quick breathing. So it allows us to deep uh, breathe more fully and deeper. And that in and of itself, that is the blocking of the sympathetic nervous system, can lead to pain relief. Well, singing in a choir must be even more because you've got, it's almost like a group meditation, which must have its own energy. So it'll have the meditative effects, the group meditative effects, plus the music effects. So that sounds like it's even better. Yes, potentially, you're right, even better. Now, let's look at mind-body approaches because when I was rounding, uh, you know, uh, with Dr. David Spiegel, he would do, be doing hypnosis for pain therapy and reducing it and looking at the size and color of it, and he's had some success. He's agreed to be on the show at a later date. So, tell us about the various mind-body techniques because Stanford was certainly using these in the hospital setting. Those can be quite effective, too. I, I think that it takes a bit longer 
and that's why some patients, I think, are reluctant to use them. But let's talk about cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. I have, you know, a good number of patients who have chronic pain syndromes who engage cognitive behavioral therapy and have found it quite useful. This is where uh, patients will see a pain psychologist and it's actually a reframing or a reworking, if you will, of the brain's perceptive ability. The psychologists work with patients who have pain to um, reduce the perception of chronic pain. It seems like I think when I tell certain patients this, they, they feel like I might be crazy. How can they, if you, how could they will themselves pain relief? However, you actually can, to a certain extent, do that. And it occurs over time, you know, months, usually, of practice. And the practice entails removing the negative thought patterns that occur and converting them to positive affirmative statements. And that's key because when you have chronic pain, and we can all imagine this, it's easy to lapse into destructive thinking. This is, for example, this is never going to get better. My life is ruined. I'll never be able to play tennis again. And these types of thoughts just permeate our mind. The CBT helps reverse that. And we even have, we talked about neuroimaging, or neuroimaging studies earlier. Neuroimaging studies have also shown that this process called cognitive behavioral therapy over time can actually sort of rewire the brain in a way that reduces pain. That is exciting. It also helps with depression. So for the listener, you have to find a practitioner that practices cognitive behavioral therapy, abbreviated CBT, or you can find somebody expert in hypnosis to help you with that route as well. What about various herbs? Herbal therapies are also can also be effective. And those, I think you have to be careful sometimes with the herbals. I've had some patients who use different types of herbs. Some of them can be similar to some of the anti-inflammatory medicines that we use. You know, there's some other, many of them are similar to, say, aspirin. So they have a pain-relieving effect by reducing inflammation. And, and they can be, there's no question that they can be helpful. I think you just have to be careful if you're using certain herbs that have a similar mechanism of action of other things you might be taking over the counter, like Motrin, not to take both of them. What herbs would you recommend? Well, you know, the herbal medicines, I'm, some of the patients that I've seen have used a fair number of them. <laughs> I mean, I think that the ones, and we don't unfortunately yet have a huge evidence base with respect to which ones are particularly more effective than others. But saying that, I would say Devil's Claw has shown to be effective or as effective even as some of the anti-inflammatory medicines like Motrin for relieving low back pain without having the same harmful side effects as Motrin. So that's one that I've recommended to patients who have low back pain. They've also, that is patients with low back pain, have also benefited from willow bark, which is the plant from which aspirin is derived. And, um, and some studies have shown that, that oral willow bark uh, has provided as much pain relief as traditional anti-inflammatory medications for low back pain. So you'd have to be careful if you take willow bark with aspirin because you can double up on the side effects. 
Exactly. That's exactly right. Feverview is another one that I've had patients use, which is a member of the DAISY family and also has anti-inflammatory-like activity. So that's something that has helped patients who have headaches, arthritis, and even menstrual cramps. Okay, and I want to just uh, let the listener know you've got to be careful about the quality of the herbs you're getting. Many are adulterated. You don't know what you get when they come from a foreign country. Chinese herbs might have a lot of anticholinergic effects and things that with results you might not want. So you have to be careful because there is a, a question of quality and quality control and what else is in the supplements you are taking. So you have to be a little careful. What about PEMF, pulse electromagnetic frequencies? Pulse electromagnetic, well, uh, in terms of pulse, so we, do you mean like pulse radio frequency? Well, there's several devices out, PEMF, I'm Dr. Oz talked about it. There's a couple of German companies uh, on the med and Beamer, they're making pulse electromagnetic frequencies. There's also microfrequencies where we've had a speaker previously on the show and it's claimed a lot of success. So what do you feel about those? Well, I feel that when I, the one that I use most often is pulsed radio frequency uh, treatment and that uses electromagnetic waves to help reduce how pain is transmitted in nerves, and specifically peripheral nerves. For example, I mean, I have patients who have, um, say, they have inguinal pain or pain in the groin area after having had inguinal hernia repair, and it's nerve pain that they feel sort of go down the groin, maybe into the labia or maybe into the scrotum. And you know, the pulsed radio frequency treatment uses a needle that's placed along the nerve and a, a device is turned on at a low temperature that induces these electromagnetic waves around the nerve. And I've found, and there have been some studies that have supported this, that that can be effective in terms of providing more sustained pain relief. And that's the key here, you know. We do a nerve block and that can be helpful. Sometimes the nerve blocks, however aren't going to last two, three, four months, whereas the pulsed radiofrequency treatment can do that. And I've seen that in patients who have groin pain or even patients who have um, occipital pain, occipital headaches from a condition called occipital neuralgia. The pulsed radiofrequency treatment along two of those nerves in the back of the scalp can help reduce pain for several months. I also like to point out to the listeners they can check back uh, on the talks by Dr. Len Zaputo, who had a lot of luck with his light therapies that really helped people with pain, and Robert Rowan, who worked with ozone, who relieved people of pain. Uh, so those are two past episodes you can look up under either the title or the uh, pre- presenter's name. Let's look at some regenerative approaches, proleotherapy, stem cells. Can you tell us uh, about some of these approaches? Sure. That's a really exciting area and a growing area, to say the least. These therapies help restore damaged tissue. That is stem cell therapy, prolotherapy, platelet-rich plasma therapy. Some of the listeners might have heard of these treatments or even maybe had some of them. And really, these are on the forefront, I think, of helping reduce pain to a significant to a significant degree. These therapies, I think, on the other hand, are sort of in its infancy. We have information, we have studies that have shown that they can be effective. A lot of the studies are in animals. More of them are now in humans. But I think that 
perhaps we still don't know enough. And I say that even though, even though you know, there are stem cell clinics and there are platelet-rich plasma clinics available across the country. So I think that they can be helpful. We're seeing that they can help restore damaged tissue and thereby reduce pain. And I think they also will be able to, once we learn more about their, how, how exactly they work, um, we'll be able to perhaps even restore you know, damaged nerves parts of the spinal cord that are damaged. I mean, these things are tremendously exciting. What's proleotherapy? That is another regenerative therapy that uses dextrose, which is a sugar, to help reduce pain. It's intriguing. You would never think that sugar could reduce pain, but this is uh, sugar that's injected around typically damaged tendons, damaged ligaments that can cause pain. And it's sort of done in multiple areas of the, where the pain is located and, uh, and can help elicit the inflammatory response which leads to regeneration and healing of damaged tissue. What's platelet therapy? Platelet-rich plasma therapy uses our own blood. So it's blood that's taken from us. It's spun down. And the... It's spun down to the point where the platelets are concentrated, and the platelets in our bodies are important for coagulation, but they also have a lot of chemicals in them that help restore function, that help reduce pain, that help restore damaged tissue. So what they're doing in platelet-rich plasma therapy is taking our blood, spitting it down, concentrating the platelets, and then injecting platelets in areas of pain. Again, typically for musculoskeletal injuries, tendon injuries, ligament injuries. And gosh, you know, some of those results have been quite remarkable. What do the platelets do? Well, the platelets contain molecules that in and of themselves then, once they're released in areas of damaged tissue, recruit other cells like collagen to rebuild damaged tissue, rebuild, for example, ligaments, rebuild tendons. And, and some of this, some of these, some platelet-rich plasma has been, you know, even injected into muscles to help rebuild damaged muscle. And that's how we think at this point that it functions. I mean, there are unanswered questions about, well, what's the exact dose? You know, how many millions of platelets are required or important for a certain pain condition? How often should you inject the platelets? Typically, I think they're done uh, in three sessions, two sessions or so. But, you know, I think scientifically we don't have all the answers, yet um, there are practitioners, physicians, and so on that are offering these therapies for pain control. Well, actually, we're, there are coming several... close, we're coming close to a close now, so you, would you like to make any summarizing points? Discuss your new book, Aches and Gains, which is out shortly, as well as um, ways to get a hold of you. Sure. Well, uh, the book, yes, the book is out. It's called Aches and Gains, and uh, I, I feel like it'll be a tremendous resource for anyone who has chronic pain or for their caregivers or anybody who's worried about developing pain because I, I really done quite a bit of research on providing the most effective tools for combating chronic pain in various different ways. So traditional methods, integrative methods, and innovative approaches. And I think I'd like everyone to 
realize a couple of things. One, you know, if you have pain, don't wait. Don't wait too long before you seek help because what we do know is that the longer you wait, the more likely it is that pain can continue. Also, reach out for the help that you need. I feel like I see patients who um, sometimes just don't know where to turn and they unfortunately end up not turning to anybody. So I think it's important to go online, use some of the resources that are there, talk to other people, you know, and find someone who can help make a diagnosis and come up with effective treatments. And then finally, don't give up because I think that it's easy to give up if you've had pain for years, even months, you know, and I think that if you can hang in there, search, talk to people, you'll come up with a good solution for yourself. Any other parting advice? Well, uh, I think that in terms of having effective treatments, I've noticed that a lot of, there's sort of a lot of misinformation about what's available and what is not in terms of pain treatments. And I, and I want to emphasize, and I've tried to do this in my book as well, that we do have numerous different ways of reducing chronic pain. If it's not medications necessarily or nerve blocks, well, it may be certain integrative therapies that you and I have talked about today, acupuncture or yoga or some of the mind-body therapies and even innovative approaches, spinal cord stimulation, electrical stimulation. We do have quite a number. So I think it's important for patients to seek out a pain specialist, if they can, who is knowledgeable in these areas. Well, I thank you for that information because I hope this offers some suggestions for those out there that are suffering from pain. So at least, uh, you know, you can function better and feel less pain. Also, advise everybody to do their own research, look into different sources, uh, communicate this and work with your physicians so you can help yourselves and you can help other people and be well. you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.